0: Welcome to the Louisville Real Estate Investing and Real Estate Financial Planning Podcast. Learn all about investing in real estate in Louisville, Kentucky, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Louisville, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Louisville. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Real Estate Partnerships. Again, I'm James Orr and let's get started. So uh, we've been going through a series of classes. So the primary strategies and primary classes we typically teach to kind of answer your question, Bill. These are the ones we tend to focus on. So buy and hold, nomad and house hacking. Those are sort of the primary strategies that I tend to teach classes on. Tonight is sort of another that is I don't know, sort of just outside of what we normally teach. We do some stuff on partnerships, but it's not the primary content that we typically do. So all the secondary strategies to creative financing, we covered all that last week. That's like owner financing, subject to, rent to own, lease option, lease purchase, the ultimate strategy, agreement for deed, contract for deed, all those ones as well. And then we did another class on quick turning or flipping properties. We did another class on the BRRRR strategy, which is buy, rehab, rent, refinance and then the last star if you want to do it is to repeat that process over and over again then wholesaling and wholesaling, we're gonna cover that here in the next couple weeks options and option auction we talked about that we're gonna have that coming up next couple weeks tax liens and tax deeds again we're gonna cover those and then tonight is partnerships and syndications and we'll talk about the three roles in detail tonight about the three roles that partners can play and then the stuff that I'm not going to cover real estate investment trusts you can go talk to your stock stock broker about buying a real estate investment trust or your financial planner uh, or covered in other strategies, probate, short sales, foreclosures, and pre-foreclosures. Those are sort of like topics that are covered in other strategies, so we're not gonna have separate classes on those. So any questions on the real estate investing strategies and like what we're covering and what we've covered so far? Okay, awesome. All right, so partner rules. Before I go into a lot of detail about partnerships and everything else, I wanna explain to you that we break down partnerships into three roles. There's the deal maker, also called a syndicator, someone who goes out there, does all the work, finds the deal, ties up the deal, brings the other partners together, raises the money, gets the, you know finds someone to get, to get the loan for the partnership, usually manages the deal itself, manages the partnership itself, usually kind of uh, coordinates filing taxes and all the other paperwork associated with that. Uh, in some cases, they manage the property, like actually do the property management or they'll manage the property manager, um, they're also, you know, liquidating the deal and getting out of the deal. So the dealmaker syndicator is the guy that puts everything together and kind of organizes the partnership. That's the, that's that one role. The next role is the money partner. Pretty obvious. They bring the money. So if you need a down payment plus reserves, plus closing costs, plus, you know, rehab costs or anything like that, the money partner is going to be the person that brings that money. And then the last role is the loan partner. They're usually the ones that are going out there and getting the financing In bigger deals. You know, they're, they're signing on the things they're showing their income and their assets and they're qualifying for the loan. Uh, for some of the smaller deals, they may just be getting the loan itself and you know, doing it on behalf of the LLC or something like that. So that's the loan partner. Those are the three roles. Any questions on the three roles? We're going to go through a lot of detail on it tonight, but it helps if you really understand what they are now. Any questions? Pretty simple, straightforward. Awesome. So variations by role. So, How much money is required, how much risk there is, what the scalability is, what the credit requirements are, um, what the different um, skills are, what the style of investing is, how stable it is, what the profit speed is and the profit size, and whether or not you can reuse your retirement account in order to do these. They all vary by role. So it's not like you can say partnerships are all this. It's like we're going to talk tonight and say, well, the dealmaker syndicator has this specific set of risks. The money partner has these specific sets of risks. The uh, loan partner has these, and we're gonna go through in detail all the different ones so that you could see how different roles vary. Just about everything depends on which role you take in the partnership. They're different for the deal maker than they are for the money partner. They're different for the loan uh, partner. All right, so especially with partnerships, and this is this is true of a lot of other um, classes we've taught, but I think partnerships is even more true, and that is that, I've tried to sort of give you an overview, but because we can do these so many different ways, you can't assume that everything I tell you is 100% correct in all cases. Because you can come up to me and say, "But James, what about this really weird thing where if I structure it this way, then they don't have this risk or they don't have this money requirement or they don't need to do this or it's much more scalable if you do this?" Yes, that's true. I can't cover everything and I can't tell you that, you know, I'm covering every possible color or version of things that you're doing. So just realize that they're all varied like that. So you can find a a way to do a deal or structure a deal or make choices that are not in line with what I'm talking about tonight, but just realize that I'm acknowledging that up front. Okay? And just because you don't think there's a chance that X can happen doesn't mean that it won't happen. So you may hear me talk about stuff tonight and be like, why is he even saying that? What's the chance of that happening? Well, it can happen. That's why I'm talking about it, right? So just realize that. You know, not because just because you haven't seen it. You know, there's, a, there's someone who comes to class who will tell you, "Oh, real estate values—they always go up." I'm like, ah, nope, that's not true. So you you get the idea that there are these things that if you just because you haven't seen it happen doesn't mean that it won't happen to you in the future and that it can't happen. Do your own research. This is intended to be a starting point for discussion. Please do not take like everything I say as James said this, so that must be true. You know, go do this as a starting point to research and say, oh, he said something about that. Maybe I should look into it or talk to my attorney or whatever you're going to do about that. Any questions on exceptions? Cool. All right, so real estate partnership variations. Real estate partnership variations. So these can be formally structured in a number of ways. Um, I'll talk about, I have uh, three active partnerships still going on. Um, In all three of them, I am the money partner. I don't think I nope, I'm a money partner in all three of them that remain. Uh, one of them is for a 100 unit apartment complex. Um, I'm a minority money partner in that one. Another one is for a single single family home. I'm a money partner in that one. And another one is for a small group of single family homes. And I'm a money partner in that one. I've done partnerships before in, in various capacities. In some cases, I was the um, deal maker syndicator. In some cases, I was. Um, I don't know if I've been loan partner in a long time, if I have. It's been a while since I did loan partners, I've been using loan spots for my own stuff. So if, if I did do loan stuff, it was early on. But primarily my role has been money partner. So just to kind of talk about these. So in one of the deals, it's, it's, very, um, it's a very simple structure, it's an LLC, there's two owners and it's really simple. In another one, there's an LLC and there's several owners And there's the syndicator who's doing the overwhelming majority stuff. And the syndicator also happens to be the the loan partner in that one. Um, And then the hundred units, I think it's an LLC. It's been so long. I think it's an LLC and there's a lot of investors in it. And I think there is a loan signer for that one, although I'm not the deal syndicator and I have less insight as to exactly what's going on in that particular one. So to give you an idea of like how you can structure these, and there's lots of different ways to structure them. You could structure these as general partnerships where you and someone else get together and you just agree to buy a whole bunch of properties. Or you could do it deal by deal. You could do it house by house. You could structure these any number of ways. Um, And depending on what strategy you're doing, you might want to structure them different ways. So just realize there's a lot of variation there. Uh, You could do these real estate partnerships with almost any of the real estate strategies we've talked about. So you could do partnerships to do buy and hold. You could do partnerships to do house hacking. You could do partnerships to do some type of nomad. I mean, that's what nomad by proxy is largely, right? Um, You could do these strategies with um, fix and flips. You could do these strategies with creative financing. So there's a lot of different strategies you can use to do these with. You don't have to do any one particular one. What else on here? Buy and hold tends to be the most common, probably for real estate investing strategies. Um, And it can be any one or more of the three roles, and sometimes the deal does not require a role. For example, last week we talked about creative financing and buying property subject to. And in those cases, do you need a loan partner? Who's really acting as the sort of de facto loan partner? The seller. Yeah, the seller, because you're actually taking over existing financing. So you don't need to bring in a separate partner. They sort of are acting indirectly as the loan partner in that particular deal. So sometimes roles don't exist in those. Um, You can do this in local markets or remotely, so if you're having a hard time finding deals that are worth buying, you don't have to do your deals here locally. You can do partnerships in other markets. There's someone who I know is doing a a pretty large syndication and um, part of their pitch for how they're going out there and raising money is they're doing geographic diversification. They're gonna buy a couple commercial apartment buildings and some commercial office buildings and um, I think they're even doing like a hotel And they're kind of doing this geographically diversified, so it's not all in one city. They plan on having some, I think they're buying like 10 properties or something, uh, 10 big properties, and they're doing this uh, geographically diversified. So you don't have to do this in your local market, and sometimes you may want to structure these such that you have diversification. That could be one of your angles to do these in. Uh, let's see, can it be a property type? We'll focus primarily on single-family homes for modeling later. I think, Bill, you were asking whether or not you know, we ever talk about commercial investing, you know, apartment buildings and stuff. And yeah, we definitely do teach classes on that, but just because I'm talking about single-family homes tonight doesn't mean you can't do and structure these with apartment buildings. Um, we're, we're definitely seeing a trend toward cap rates on commercial properties being lower. Um, and I think that's making these much harder for the commercial properties to make sense. Although, you know, I think there's still viable investment options, so. Okay, investor entrepreneur. So, when we talked about this before. Are you primarily investing either money with the hope of getting return on your money, or are you primarily investing time, and in many cases, some money, in order to get a return on your time? So for real estate partnerships, there are three roles. So for a money partner, what are they primarily investing? Are they investing time, or are they investing money? Money, it's really obvious, right? That's the big obvious one, right? And, then, and money partner coming in, they're usually investing money, they don't expect to do a lot of work, so they're investing money and they're expecting to get a return on that. What about the deal maker or syndicator? Are they typically investing their own money or their time in order to get a return on their time or return on their money, what do you think? Yeah, the deal syndicator is the one doing all the work and they're putting in all the effort and they expect to be compensated for that effort and that time that they put in. So they're really more of a time sort of a thing, so it's more like real estate entrepreneurship for them. What about the loan partner? For a loan partner who's going in and signing and personally guaranteeing a loan, are they primarily investing time, or are they investing money? Their credit. Yeah, it's kind of a weird one, right? Because they're really not doing much of either. They're, sort of, they're more real estate entrepreneurship-like because they're not investing money, but they're not doing a lot of time either. They're signing some documents, and they're having to maintain their job, you know, get, the, get financing and use their credit in order to do that. So if you had to force me to choose between real estate entrepreneurship and, and uh, real estate investing for them, I would say it's entrepreneurship-like, because it's not either, it's not really that they're investing a lot of time, but it's more like that than it is real estate investing-like. Any questions on this? Yeah, Daniel. For the deal-makers, yep. it's a lot of time-intensive, like, I, I don't know if this, is a, if this is a dumb question, have you found that they'll kind of include some sort of like management fee or some, some practice like that? Yeah. So for the microphone, Daniel asks, um, you know, for the dealmaker, the the syndicator of the deal, are they usually getting paid some type of management fee or something like that? And yes, the answer is absolutely. Depends on what they're doing as to what they're getting paid for. In some partnerships, they may uh, charge an acquisition fee. So a fee to go out there and find the deal, put the deal together. And a lot of times they'll take a, you know, percentage off the top or dollar amount off the top. They might say, you know, we're taking 1% fee on the money we raise or, you know, the first deal that we put together, the price of the deal or whatever they're doing that way in order to be compensated for all the work that goes into finding the deal, putting the deal under contract, doing all the due diligence, finding all the the money lenders or the, Uh, the money money partners and the loan partners and kind of doing all that. So they may charge some type of acquisition fee. They may charge some ongoing property management. If they're doing the property management themselves, they may charge some type of partnership management fee. Um, They may charge like a dissolution fee. Of some sort, they may charge some fee for overseeing uh, taxes, like if they're going to do tax returns and kind of send out updates and you know do management meetings where you're getting um, you know advice or input from the partners. So they could be charging fees for all those different things. So yeah, there's definitely some fees involved. And you know, are you doing that? Do you typically see like you know acquisition fees and you know partnership management fees when you and a buddy get together to go buy rentals? Probably not, right? I mean, I think that that makes sense. But as you get into the bigger deals, there's a lot more time and energy invested and sometimes money up front, then getting paid for that stuff, I think, makes a lot more sense. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, cool. Did you have a question, Cole? I almost thought I saw you do something. Okay, cool. All right, any questions about this? Cool. So money required. So sometimes it's fronted by the deal maker syndicator, but it could be entirely funded by the money partner coming in. But often the loan partner does not have any expenses, it's covered by the partnership. So, here's the, where the money is usually required for partnerships, and of course the strategy may dictate where you spend money. You know, you may need rehab money if you're doing more fix-up than if you did, um, you know, buy and hold or creative financing or you're buying a pretty house or something. So, money to consult with a local attorney to get the correct paperwork and advice. I think if you're going to do these, you want to make sure that you are willing to invest the money in order to do it right from the beginning. There's Few things worse in the world because everybody, everybody is like gung ho and happy at the beginning of the deal. They're all excited about doing the deal, but that's when you want to agree on all the things that could go wrong and how do we get out of this thing if I decide I don't like you or you don't like me or you know how we resolve our issues or what happens if someone dies and you know the dealmaker is unable to do stuff anymore. Like how do you resolve all those things? The time to work all those things out is in the beginning with the help of an attorney who structures the correct paperwork. You don't want to get to the end and find out later that we didn't think about this. We don't have a way to do this. We don't have a way to buy out a partner. I have a partnership agreement that doesn't have a buyout in it, uh, which is not come up, but that's a potential problem if a partner wants to buy someone else out. Okay. All right, so, consultation with a local attorney to get credit paperwork and advice. Uh, sometimes you're going to need money in order to do marketing and find or acquire the deal. Sometimes you'll find these deals by looking on loop net or local mls or you know networking or wholesalers or some form of that but sometimes you're spending money in order to do marketing in order to acquire deals and so it depends on which way you're doing it as to whether or not the deal maker syndicator needs to spend that money up front, and then maybe get reimbursed later by the money partner, maybe it's part of an acquisition fee, or if they're just gonna self-fund that and that's their minimal investment into the deal. Maybe they only spend money on marketing costs and talk to the attorney, and then after that, the money partner comes in does the down payment, and does the closing costs, and does the reserves and everything else, but you know that could be there. Uh, earnest money. So earnest money is usually money you put up in order to control the deal before you formally go and close. And so you'll need to have some earnest money. And with some of these larger deals, these can be significant checks. They're not just you know, $5,000. So realize you could need earnest money up front. So realize if you're doing these bigger deals, you may want to partner with your money partner early and talk about providing earnest money if you're doing those, if you're unwilling to do it, if you're the deal maker or the syndicator in that deal. Does that make sense? OK. Uh, reserves, you should not be doing these deals without reserves. And in my opinion, there's, there's a tendency for the mom and pop Landlord real estate investor, which I don't believe you should be doing this, but there's a tendency for them to kind of play it really loose and Invest in real estate without setting aside Specifically earmarking money as reserves. They'll say, you know I if I really need to I can go tap into my 401k or my IRA or I've got you know $50,000 in credit card balance that I could use or I can go get a personal loan from the bank if I really needed money to do something. So I don't really need to have six months of reserves per property set aside. When you do a partnership, though, and first of all, I don't think you should do that. I think you should set aside reserves, in my opinion. Uh, but when you're doing a partnership, I think that's sort of like cowboy, sort of uh, gunslinging, sort of like make it loosey-goosey, whatever you can do, I don't think that flies as much. Because if you've got a money partner and they've already put in $100,000 in order to do a deal and you go to them and say, hey, you know, we didn't have reserves set aside, but we got a roof and the roof's going to cost whatever it is, $20,000 on this building that we just bought, Um, I need $20,000. And they're like, ah, I don't have $20,000 right now. I just made another investment. I'm all, you know, I've used up all the money. I didn't keep reserves set aside for you doing that. And you should probably have that in your agreement as to how that all works, too. But you probably should have some money set aside for those types of things when you're doing your partnership. Which, when you're doing your deal analysis, you want to make sure you include reserves there for doing that. And we do a whole class on the importance of doing reserves when you do your deal analysis. And then that drags down the return you're getting. right? It's not like you just go do it and you're you're doing your return based on the um, you know, down payment and closing costs and the rent ready costs you have when you do first do the acquisition, you really need to do the analysis with all those costs, plus the amount of money you set aside for reserves to find out what your true return is. Because that money really can't be used for anything else. You've got to keep it set aside and maybe it's earning you know, 1%, 2%, 8%, wherever you're keeping it um, and that's actually, you can use that as part of the return you're getting. But you should be calculating your return on your real estate investments using that reserve money too in the denominator. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, cool. And if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, go watch the class. I think the class name where I first introduced this concept, I think it was called, everything you learned about deal analysis is wrong. Because I think everybody else, when they do their spreadsheet, does not include reserves. So any number where you say, you know, my cash on cash return and my cap rate return, like if you're doing those numbers and you're not taking into account the reserves, I think those are actually wrong calculations. It's not like you're just sort of off a little bit. It's like that's incorrect. And so go watch that class where we talk about that. And I have some frameworks for doing reserves, whether you're doing you know six months of reserves or 12 months of reserves and what the differences are and how I kind of look at those. So you definitely need reserves as part of the money required when you're doing these partnerships. Usually down payment, but there can be exceptions. There can be exceptions where you're doing you know partnership deals where it's no money down. I mean, we could go buy creative financing deals where you really have no down payment required. You're taking over in a loan. So it could be that you don't need a down payment in those cases. Uh, Sometimes repair costs. You know, sometimes you're buying a property and it needs repairs. Sometimes you're buying properties and they're in perfect condition. So it really depends on the type of deal you're doing. But sometimes you do need repair costs for that. And then closing costs in order to close the deal. And then marketing in order to sell or occupy or fill your property. Or holding costs uh, while you're kind of doing that stuff as well. Any questions on money required for doing partnership deals? And where it comes from? Really the answer is it usually does not come from the loan partner You know, for this money required. Usually either comes from the money partner or in some cases the deal syndicator, uh, the deal maker slash syndicator and sometimes that's reimbursed. Sometimes it's not. It's really all negotiated. You realize there's no like formal structure for this. It's not like everything is rigidly set and you always got to do it this way. Does that make sense everybody? This is all negotiated. That's what makes this so complex and hard to teach is that I try to give you examples but you could do it another way, and it could be totally different. Okay? All right, credit required. So the dealmaker or syndicator, depending on how it's structured and ownership sizes, some lenders may require that the dealmaker maker syndicator sign for the loan as well, but often they do not need to sign for the loan and do not need to have credit in order to do this, especially if you're a small minority partner. If you're a dealmaker syndicator and you've got a, a majority stake in the deal, a lot of times the lender is going to want to see you on there signing for the loan as well, okay? Money partner, they do not usually need to sign for a loan and have no credit requirement. This is pretty typical. It's often structured for them as a limited liability partner, and their only risk is the money they put into the deal. They're usually not personally signing or personally guaranteeing anything to do with the loan. They usually are not required to put additional money into the deal unless you write it up that way. And then if you're the money partner, you wanna make sure you understand what your obligations are. But most of the time it's, hey, I put in, know $500,000 or $100,000 or $10,000 or whatever it is and that is the extent of my investment in this particular partnership and I will not have any margin calls or or capital calls on any of those so realize you have limited um, calls for money as the money partner in those situations okay and then finally the loan partner yeah they need to have credit required in order to get the loan unless you're doing some creative deal where the seller is leaving the financing in place, or something like that. So the loan partner typically needs great credit and often needs great income and assets to sign for the loans, especially for larger deals. Okay, and some de- some deals credit is not required at all. See the strategy classes for detailed info. But a couple examples might be partnership flips, where you're using the seller's financing in order to keep on the property while you're doing the flip, or some creative financing stuff as examples. Any questions on credit? Yeah, For the loan partner, in your experience, um, have you have you found the loan partner to either be like in a high-paying job, doctor, lawyer, etc., or are they typically just a very well-established, very experienced investor? So the question for the microphone is for loan partners, are they typically some type of high paying job like doctor, lawyer, you know, attorneys, something like that? Um, Or are they, you know, just a pretty well established investor? And my experience is it's all over the place. Um, Like, one of the partners, one of the partners I have is a very well established uh, real estate investor, they're not a doctor or lawyer or anything like that. Um, Another one, it is not a doctor, lawyer, or even what I would consider a well-established um, real estate investor. It's just a regular real estate investor, you know, not crazy assets, not crazy income, just sort of that. And a lot of the ones, <sighs> let me think about this. So Some of the other ones I've done, they've also not been really crazy high earner type people. Um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, like somebody just buying a single family home, they're, they're able to get the loan on it. And we'll talk about the examples toward the end of class where we do Norman and norma um, kind of variations on this, but you know, they're just regular people and they can qualify for the loan to buy a single family home and they just don't have the down payments or they don't have the expertise or time to do something and they bring in a money partner for down payment and they just sign for the loan. And so it doesn't have to be someone who's like crazy like that. It just, they just have to qualify. Yeah. All right, any other questions about credit required? Yeah. So that's a really good question. So Kevin asks, do you need to be an accredited investor in order to do these deals? And the answer is maybe, it depends on the deal and how many people are involved in a transaction. But if you and your buddy want to get together and buy like a single family home and you know, one of you is going to get the loan. The other one's going to do down payments. You're going to do that. Nope. You don't. But go talk to an attorney. I mean, this is part of what you need to set the money aside for, make sure you get it structured right. So ask the attorney when you go sit down with them, is this like an accredited investor situation? But my understanding is if it's just you and your buddy doing something or you and your buddy and maybe one other person doing it, probably not. If you're going to go out there and formally raise money, and there's regulations. Cole may know. Actually, no. You can talk to a meth class if you may know. But there's rules about like what requires accreditation and what requires. There's like another level in that too, right? I think if it's like a real estate investment trust that's registered with the SEC, you're more likely to have something like that. But yeah. Like, for the small like single family deals. No. Yeah. So just go find out. Talk to an attorney. You're gonna you're you're gonna want to talk to an attorney. You should be not not be doing this without paperwork at all. And you definitely should go get advice from somebody. So this is like a two-minute question you ask that's part of your hour or two that you're going to get with your attorney. So just go ahead and ask that and make sure you're doing it right rather than me give you bad advice. And my understanding is these laws are becoming much more friendly for doing these types of deals too. I'm just seeing regulations coming across saying that they're going to reduce the requirements in some form. So, I mean, all this stuff changes. So yeah, don't rely on what you're hearing here. Go talk to an attorney. It's the best answer. Any other questions? Cool. So skills required and the skills required for the dealmaker syndicator are significantly more involved than the the skills required for the money lender or the loan partner. So the whole left hand side of this slide is called the dealmaker skills. And then the right hand side, there's like a couple lines for that. Okay. So I'm going to cover the money partner and loan partner first because they're easy. Okay. Money partner, you got to have the money or access to the money in form of assets or credit. Loan partner, you gotta have the ability to get the loan. You need to have credit, income, and in some cases assets. Pretty easy. That's it for those. Any questions on those before I go into all the dealmaker syndicator stuff? Okay. So, dealmaker syndicator, you gotta find the deals. I mean, that's your job, right? You're out there finding amazing deals in order to bring in partners that wanna invest with you. So, you gotta go find deals, and in some cases, that's gonna require marketing skills. If you're not just going to the MLS and trying to do a deal that way, and you could sort of like see between the lines of like deals that are in plain sight, but you know what to do with them in order to make them really, really profitable. A really basic example of this would be, you know, buying a property that you're gonna convert as a short-term rental. You know, someone may have a property that's listed for sale, but the income could be amazing if you do a short-term rental on it, and it could be worthwhile if you raising money with a money partner or a loan partner in order to go do those types of deals. But you need the expertise to be able to go see those in plain sight when they're just lying in the MLS and no one else is looking for them, or like be able to kind of, you know, put those together and have the expertise to run those, okay? As one example. Yeah, question. Exactly. Yeah,
1: question Yeah.
0: So, like maybe in your case scenario, have, have, do they essentially just need proof of funds type of thing or are they looking into your finances more than just that, like, to qualify, the loan partner qualified? qualify? Yeah, mean, so, so Nathan asked. Yeah. So Nathan asks whether or not the money partner is going to need to like have someone come in and look at all their financing and confirm that they have the money and where it's coming from and source it and everything. And it depends. But if you and a buddy are buying a single family home together or a duplex, triplex, fourplex, maybe even a small apartment building. And it's a pretty simple one. You telling them that I've got $200,000 to invest is going to be fine. They're not going to need to go do that. When you get the loan, they may or may not ask you, the lender may or may not ask you where those funds came from, just to kind of know. So make sure you go talk to whoever's doing the loan or talk to the money partner, make sure you structure all that correctly. But in most cases, I don't even think that's come up for me. Um, But it's not saying that it won't ever come up in the future. And part of it may be the lender and how you structured it and everything else like that. But no, I don't think that's the case. Now, if you're doing like one of these larger, type syndications or something like that, maybe they may wanna go and source that. Um, I've not seen that come up. Some of the larger syndications that I like, I didn't get sourced for my down payment um, for the larger syndications I've done. Um, and the, the ones that I know about going on now, I understand their process is basically you need to have your attorney or CPA just sign a statement that says you're accredited and they're not looking at stuff, you just need to do that and have, send in your check. So I don't think they're doing anything like that. So it it probably depends, but in most cases, no, I don't think that's gonna be an issue. Does that answer your question? Okay, cool. All right, cool, so finding deals, and a lot of times that involves marketing in order to find them off market, You know how to do motivated seller marketing of that sort. Uh, Analyzing deals, being able to estimate rehab or cash flow, you run the deal numbers, estimating value if you're trying to buy stuff under value, doing comps, things of that nature, or if you're not able to do these yourself, you need to be able to have someone else that you could tap to do it. You know, if you've got a real estate agent or in a, a CPA or someone else who's willing to help you with deal analysis or help you with estimating value or anything like that, then you can uh, like outsource it, but you need to be able to perform that as part of your deal maker syndicator thing, whether it's you directly or you're using someone else to do it. Deal structuring, and part of this is negotiation, but structuring the deal and also negotiating with the partnership as to how that's gonna be structured. Uh, raising money, you need to go find your money partners also uh you know finding uh financing finding your loan partner to be able to do that so that's another skill you need to have managing the partners and the partnership itself you need to know what is involved in running a partnership and managing the partnership and getting taxes done and having meetings and giving updates and you know making decisions and following the guidelines for the the agreement the llc or the entity that you're using in order to do this you need to be able to run the partnership and deal with partners i mean you know, people with money can be a little bit strange. So if you've got, you know, somebody who you've been really friendly with, and then all of a sudden they give you $300,000, um, they may start treating you very differently and you may need to deal with that person. Um, you know, especially if things don't go your way. I mean, when, when the market goes your way, I think a lot of times that just everything seems super smooth, right? It's when you have problems that you have to deal with a lot of these situations and markets don't always go up. Yeah, so the question is, can they go after the assets of the money partner? And I have a different slide here when we talk about risk, and I will tell you what each individual person's risk exposure is, but part of it is how it's structured and what people are doing and what people are promising, right? I could see a situation, I wouldn't recommend this, but I could see a situation where a money partner has written into their LLC agreement or their their operating agreement or whatever they're doing that basically says, if we run short on money, you are agreeing to provide additional money to kind of hold the partnership over. And it it could be, you know, unlimited. I mean, it it could be just just not clearly stated as to what that is. And I don't think that's an unusual clause to have in there, right? Like, what happens if we run out of money? Who's going to bring in the money? So I don't think it's an unusual situation to do that. But if I'm the money partner, I want to know what my exposure is and I want to know what the the obligations I have and what my risk is and how that might all play out. Um, And if you're the money partner in that deal, maybe you say, I don't wanna have that obligation. Maybe that's on the dealmaker syndicator and that's part of the, you know, if if a dealmaker syndicator has good financial strength, that could be a benefit that they offer. Say, look, you know, you're bringing in the money, you're bringing in 100,000 or 250 or or a million dollars or whatever it is, but that's your only money that you're gonna bring in. If we ever need money, I will personally provide that and it says so in the operating agreement. But we'll talk about risk here in a little bit, okay? answer your question okay cool. um uh, selling or filling the property you know if you're doing that property management and this could be you know you hiring a property management company and managing the manager or it could be you actually as the deal maker syndicator doing the actual property management uh you know taking calls from tenants screening tenants putting tenants in properties filling out leases doing renewals dealing with you know requests for maintenance on properties like all that stuff could be you as a deal maker syndicator and part of you know, your negotiation of what you're charging and what you're getting paid is, is part of like what you're doing what you're providing. Uh, rehab on the property. So you might be doing some work yourself. You may be managing subcontracts or you might be managing a general contractor depending on what you're doing. And even if there is rehab on the types of deals you're doing. And then maybe sales skills. You know, you've got to sell the seller if you're out there doing deals with individual sellers directly. You're not going through brokers. you got to be able to sell the buyer if you're selling properties. You know, that's a sales skill. Or if you, you gotta sell the partners on why they should do this partnership deal with you. So it's a sales skill. You know, it's not just, I love real estate, I like looking at properties on the weekend. It's, you know, it's salesmanship. And, and probably some technical skills as well. Any questions on skills? You can see the deal maker is responsible for a lot of stuff. I'm the deal structuring, like when you're talking percentage of ownership, Yep. Say I go in with a buddy. I got, got fifty grand. He's got the good job. Um, we both find the deal together. I don't know. I mean, I know it's negoti- negotiated, so it can be whatever you want. But yeah. like, what's what's reasonable? Or <laughs> I know that's a very broad. So you yeah. that's hard to answer. But so I feel like you need some parameters because it's like I don't know. Yeah. So Bill's question is, uh, what's a reasonable percentage? that a dealmaker syndicator should get? What's a reasonable percentage of money partner should get? What's a reasonable percentage that the loan partner should, should get? And uh, it's all negotiable, as you said. The challenge is everybody has their own perspective and everyone thinks that their role is the most important role, right? We So we, um, and I should probably do these classes again, but when we've taught partnership class in the past, we had a much different format for, this is just sort of a, a partnerships as a strategy class. And we had classes on Partnerships and how to do them, and like what the roles are. And there's a lot more, there's different detail. It wasn't more detail, it was different detail. And then we used to do a second class. And the reason why I'm telling you a story about this, we basically teach a class on how to do partnerships. And then the next week, we come to class and we played the partnership game. And the partnership game was everyone got game pieces that said kind of like what their negotiating range was for the different roles. And then, you know, we'd have like 30 people in a class and 10 people would be told that they're money partners and they'd have a green name tag. 10 people would be told that they're, you know, the deal maker syndicator person and they'd have their spreadsheet with the deal that they have, how much cash flow, how much down payments required, all that stuff. And they'd have some parameters that they need to do and it'd be 10 of those. And then we'd have 10 people that were loan partners that can get loans on the deal and do that. And we'd set everyone loose in the room and they had to team up in groups of three and negotiate the terms of the deal that they felt they won, they were comfortable with and you'd see, and then at the end of class, once we did everything, and most people came together and structured a deal, worked it out, we would list out on the board what the ranges of what everyone negotiated. So we'd say, you know, money partners got between X and Y, and, you know, that seemed reasonable, and some people were happy, some people were like, oh my gosh, they were able to negotiate that. And then we'd have the loan partner version of that, and we'd have the deal syndicator. And the answer to your question is, it was all over the freaking place. It wasn't like... Deal maker gets 10% or deal maker gets 50% or loan partner always gets X and sometimes in real world People take on multiple roles like one of the partnerships. I'm in the deal maker syndicator is also the loan partner They are personally signing guaranteeing the loans and so they got a bigger piece Right and sometimes when you structure these things there are minimums, so they'll say look um, the money partners get the first 8% or 10% return on this. Then after that, the syndicator or whatever else the other roles are, they get caught up to 8%. Then after that, we split it until 16%, and then anything over 16%, the syndicator gets 75% of that, and the money partner gets 25%. So you could structure these all over the place and do them very oddly. Now most of the people in the room when we do that exercise, we're not doing that kind of like tiered, you know, pri- premium, you know, priority returns stuff like that. But in the real world, that does happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, how about if a scenario where um, payment is made until the money partner gets paid back? Yeah. And so Bill says, sell, what, about, whatever. what about a situation where the money partner gets paid back first, and then you guys split it at a different level after that? Sure. Now, here's the tricky part about that. Let's say you're the deal maker, syndicator, you're doing that, and the money partner gets 100% of the money you know, until the money partner gets paid back, and then you guys start to split it. But you're doing property management, you're doing taxes, you're doing managing the maintenance on the property and overseeing that. And let's say that has to go on for five years before you get paid. Are you happy doing that? Probably not. And that's the tricky part is like, you really need to think through like, what am I doing? What work is involved? What hours are involved? What's the labor cost that's involved before I even get a penny from this? And maybe you get like 75% and then the money partner gets 25% after that. And maybe you're willing to do that. I don't know. It's like really a negotiation as to what you're doing and, and what's involved. Does that make sense? It's very gray. <laughs> it is very gray. And this is like the warning I gave you at the beginning. There's so many different ways to structure these things. Yeah, it seems like the deal maker's doing a lot. Obviously, you need all three to make it happen. So. Yes. Or you just do it yourself. Right? Okay. I mean, that's the yeah, other option. That seems well, I mean, if, if you don't have one of these pieces, right? You can't get loans, or you don't have the money. You've got all your own money tied up in your own deals, but you've got good deal flow. You've got a source. You could find these. You've you got more deals than you could possibly fund yourself. Or maybe you're at your limit of your loans. You can only get you know the second tier, um, you know adjustable rate mortgage um, type loans from a portfolio lender now because you've got 10 loans in your name and now you really need like a loan partner to do deals, but you got sources of great deals. Maybe you even have down payment or you have a source of down payment. You have another partner who's like, Hey, I got plenty of money. Let's do more of those deals, but your loans aren't great anymore and you can't get any more. Maybe you do go partner with someone who can get 30 year fixed rate financing because the, excuse me, they're not, at their 10. Does that make sense? So it's tricky. All right. Any, Oh yeah. Questions. Oh, personal question. How did you know you were ready to enter a partnership? How did I know I was personally ready to enter a partnership? Um, In the three that I'm in right now, one of them I had excess money, and I was just, it was was right. I mean, I just needed a place to put money. Um, Another one, it was convenient. (laughs) So it wasn't even that I had money or anything like that. It was just a matter of convenience doing it. And the other one, it was like a buddy who was like, hey, let's buy this property together. And I was like, all right, let's go do it. It was, it was really off the cuff. It wasn't like thinking it through on those three. And in the past, sometimes I've, I've intentionally sought out partnerships, so it was very deliberate going in, and I knew I wanted to do it. Um, yeah, so I don't know. That's kind of... But, but I don't know. Sometimes it's like, especially when you know the investment. I mean, I was already buying another one in the same neighborhood at the same time. So... I just bought one and a half, right? Because right? another buddy of mine was like, hey, let's go do this. I'm like, great. You do the loan for that one. I'll kind of oversee it. You know, that's what we'll do this. And then we'll split it 50-50. That was the way we structured that particular one. You put up half the money. I put up half the money. We're basically not going to pull profits out. We're just going to let the money sit in reserves. If we want to pull money out later, we can do that. But we're just letting it just sit there and accumulate reserves and, and holding on to it. And, you know, that was the way we structured that one. And yeah. like, when there's, like, yeah. like meetings like monthly we, or like, n- not monthly or quarterly or whatever yeah. like make sure that like, yeah. like the deal makers like doing taxes and all. yeah the question was do you, how often do you meet as you, you know, when you're doing these deals and I think it does increase with complexity like the buddy and I one we still have to meet for the LSA, so there are meetings usually done via email in this case but there's still meetings not that I can't get on the phone but they're usually just not paper trail sort of stuff um, they're done that way um, but yeah, when you do the bigger ones, yeah, there's meetings. Um, the the one, one, the larger one is usually like there's a webinar, and that's sort of the meeting where there's information given out that way. But I'm, I don't even, I don't personally attend the webinars. I sort of just let it go. I'm not super, maybe I shouldn't even be saying this, but I'm not super involved. It's just like, I don't even list it. Like when I do my modeling, I don't even list it on there. Like it's that type of type deal. Um, and the other ones where we get together before COVID, we were probably doing, especially if there's stuff going on, like once every six months, maybe maybe a little bit less frequently. But if there's not a lot going on, if it's in steady state, you got tenants in there, there's nothing happening, there's, no, there's nothing to get together about, right? I mean, and then there's checks that come for a period of time. Um, so yeah, does that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Can you use 1031 money into? Yes. The question was, can you 1031 money uh, between partnerships and into other stuff? It's like kind, so check with your CPA to verify this. But if you're investing in real estate, you can move money from real estate to other real estate. Um, even if it's a syndication, so it's my understanding. I, yeah, but check with your CPA to verify. The question was, even if it's a syndication, and that's my understanding. If you can, but yeah, do you do any of those? Uh, no, not a lot, but you can even yeah. into yeah. real estate investment trust. Yeah. Kind of yeah. So. So I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to put him uh, on the hook for any obligation or liability there, but um, he would know. And you could do it. Yeah. Sources. Yeah. Yeah. Does that count for eREITs? Electronic REITs that aren't publicly traded, They're just a fund, like fund, I wouldn't know about eREITs. Yeah, we don't know about eREITs. Yeah, do your own research. Again, this is, part of it is talking to your CPA, right? Like, I don't know. In general, I love teaching classes and providing information, but it, it's a starting point for you to go, oh, Here's my list of questions for my accountant. Here's my list of questions for my attorney to verify that what James said is true. You should not believe anything I say is like true, right? Like I think it's true and I'm not trying to deliberately giving you false information, but part of your job is to go do your own due diligence and verify this. And so go talk to an attorney, go talk to your CPA to make sure that for your specific situation in your specific area, that what I'm telling you is correct. Yeah. All right. Any questions on skills required? Sweet. Stability. So um, Shane Parrish, uh, who who is from Farnham Street, sent out an email on his blog. This is probably months ago at this point. Um, And in the article, he basically talked about this idea of things being uh, stable, whether something is actively stable or passively stable. Something is actively stable, it requires your attention and your input in order to make sure that you don't die or something bad doesn't happen. And the example I think he used for that is his example was flying a jet. If you fly a jet and you're not actively engaged in flying the jet, um, things could go very, very badly and you could die. Versus um, an example of passively stable is like a boat. If you're in a boat and you stop rowing, the boat would just float there. And it's sort of like passively stable in that way. Real estate as a whole, not partnerships specifically, but real estate as a whole is actively stable. If you don't do anything with your real estate, if you're not paying your taxes and your, you don't have to have insurance, but if you don't pay your taxes, at least you're going to lose the property. If you've got a mortgage on the property, you're not paying that, you're going to lose the property. So it's, and if you're not managing your tenants and managing your properties and doing maintenance on them, it's, it's required. So it's actively stable in general. Partnerships specifically vary a little bit based on the role, but they are also actively stable. So for example, The real estate partnership where you're the deal maker or syndicator, that in my opinion is very actively stable. You have to be doing stuff actively in order to keep that thing running. You need to be managing the partnership, you need to be managing the financing, you got to be managing the property manager or the tenants directly, you got to be doing all that stuff. For a money partner or a loan partner, yeah, it's actively stable in that the investment requires some work to be done, but do you really have to be doing a lot personally? Probably not. But there is something involved in there. And so I put down it's actively stable just because real estate in general is, but you're not having to do a lot of stuff yourself. In some cases, you may need to submit financials, um, especially if you're doing like these larger deals or commercial loans. A lot of lenders are gonna want updated financials every X period of time, you know, whether that's a year or it's five years or six months or whatever it is, they'll wanna see some updated financials from you to make sure that everything's good. Otherwise, they can call the loan due. Um, for smaller deals, that's probably not happening. But that's a possibility as an example for the loan partner. And for the money partner, maybe you have some responsibilities to put more money in. Depends on what your agreement says. Okay, any other questions on stability? Sweet. Scalability. So, is doing real estate, real estate partnerships scalable? Is it a way to you know, build wealth? Um, and how big can you get with it? So, real estate partnerships for the deal maker or syndicator are often limited by deal flow. How many deals can you find and are they good enough quality where you can actually get you know, cash, uh, money partners and loan partners in order to do those? Um, and so it's really limited on your ability to deal flow and probably to a slightly lesser degree, in my opinion, is finding the partners themselves, finding the money partners and finding the loan partners to be able to do the deals. Um, so in my opinion, that could be considered a wealth building strategy because once you're able to find enough deals and partners to do it, you can scale pretty big. It's it's not like you're limited by the number of loans you can get or how much money you actually have yourself. You can really scale this up. For money partners, it is limited by the money you have to invest. So it can largely be passive wealth building strategy, but it's scalable only based on how many partnerships you can find and how much money you actually have. So I don't know, I wouldn't consider that super scalable because you're limited by your own money stuff. Loan partners, it's very limited in my opinion. It's limited by the number of loans you can personally guarantee and qualify for, and it's not typically scalable unless you graduate to signing for larger commercial loans. So you can scale it, but I think it's more limited if you're doing like single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. Once you get to larger deals, then it's a matter of your assets and your income and your ability to qualify for these larger deals. So depending on the real estate investing strategy being used by the partnership, there may be additional scaling limitations imposed by the strategy itself. So if you're doing things that are hard to scale just because the strategy is hard to scale, realize that could be an additional limitation for you. Any questions on scalability? Cool. So risk exposure. I think this was your question, Nick, right? All right, so let's talk about risk. For the dealmaker syndicator, I've kind of arbitrarily given them a medium risk rating. Why is it medium? Well, I do think there's some risk, but it's usually not a lot of their own money, and it's usually not them personally guaranteeing signing a loan, although in some cases, they do have some of their own money invested in the deal, and in some cases, they are also personally signing and guaranteeing a loan. So if you had those in there, I'd probably say it'd be higher risk, but for the most part, the dealmaker syndicator is not putting up their own money, and they're not signing for the loan, so their risk is sort of like medium. There's sort of their reputation at risk, there's their time at risk, and then you've got all the other risk of just being in the deal as to whether or not they're going to make money, which we'll talk about here in a minute. So the deal maker, I'd say, is sort of a medium risk. The money partner is also medium risk as well. They can lose their money. And it's usually limited to the amount of money that they invested. If you've got like a limited liability partnership and or limited liability uh, company, and they say, look, I'm gonna invest $100,000, but that's all I'm putting in, there's no other things in the operating agreement or anything like that that says that they need to come up with more money, then that's their limit to how much they could lose in the partnership. It's not like they can go after them personally and, and do stuff, right? So unless they're managing the property and they have risk for part of the management too which is a different thing. But a pure money partner, really that's their limitation. Now the loan partner is different though. The loan partner, and by the way, for the money partner, they're the first ones that lose money, right? If property values decline, where does that come from? It comes from the down payment. And so the down payment that the money partner gives is the first to lose money. So if we had to get out of a deal, if we are in a partnership together and we had to get out of a deal and we had to sell less than what we bought it for, then it comes out of that money partner's money, right? If, if they had to, we had to sell a property for less than what we bought it for, then they're the first ones to take that hit. Okay, But for a loan partner, they come in there and they're personally guaranteeing the loan. And personally guaranteeing the loan is you're guaranteeing it to the lender. So really, you're only having to make a guarantee if the lender loses money. Right? So if the lender comes in and property values go from zero, go to zero, which isn't likely to happen, but if it goes to zero and the lender's like, look, you know, I loaned you a million dollars and uh, I didn't get any of my money back, so now I'm personally coming after you to make me whole for the million dollars, the loan partner, because they personally signed and personally guaranteed that loan, could be obligated for that million dollars, but the in a more reasonable decline in value, you know, went from being worth a $1 million to now being worth, you know, $800,000. And the, uh, the money partner had to come in with $200,000 as their down payment in order to get that deal done. Well, the money partner is going to lose their $200,000 first. So the property values have to drop by 20% in this case, in order to have the, the loan partner have any risk in the deal where they're going to lose some money. Does that make sense? Okay. So a loan partner, I would also consider to be medium risk. So everyone has medium risk, but it's for different reasons. And I talked about the loan partners typically protected by a healthy size cushion of down payment. So typically, the money partner is the first in line with that risk. We talked about that. And the loan partner is technically unlimited risk, although theoretically, it's more likely to be the amount of the loan that is their risk. It could be for more. You know, if the, if the property that you own is now worth negative money. It's gonna cost half a million dollars for the lender to actually clean up an environmental waste issue on the property. And uh, they go after you for the whole loan balance plus the 500K in order to do the cleanup. It's more than a loan amount, right, technically? So it could be something that's worth more than a loan amount. Although I think these are like really unusual examples, right, this is exceptional. All right, so the general risks of partnerships, not specific to any role, um, possible marketing money, you know, the having uh, spent money on marketing, not finding a deal. Uh, marketing to buy, market, marketing to occupy the property, marketing to sell. Possible rehab risks, so finding out something about the property while you go in there. You already bought it, you're doing rehab on the property and things come up that you didn't expect. Possible interest rate risk, you buy the property, you're under contract on the property, there's an interest rate risk where you're going to sell the property, you have a tenant buyer in there. And while you're holding the property, interest rates go up. And now your tenant buyer can't qualify. So you have the interest rate risk while that's happening. Uh, Possible price decline during ownership. I think that's self-explanatory. Possible rent decline during ownership. I think that's also self-explanatory. Then you've got all your typical tenant and property management risk. You know, being accused of violating fair housing or something like that. I mean, I think those are all the normal risks you have with just buy and hold strategies in general. That's an additional risk you have with the partnership. Uh, and possible partnership risk, and especially based on how the partnership is structured. If you do some type of general partnership where both you and your, your buddy are general partners in the deal, and, and you know, he does something stupid, um, you could be dragged into that. So. Realize how you structure these matter. You should go talk to an attorney and do that. But there's some partnership risk based on how partnerships are structured. And there may be additional risk depending on the real estate investing strategy being used. So if you're interested in a certain strategy, go watch that whole class. And we talk about the risks specific to that strategy. And you can go learn about those. Any questions on risks? Risks. There's my Lisp coming out. If a money partner signs on the loan, If the money partner signs on a loan, yeah. so if the money partner signs on a loan, they are the loan partner too. Right. So they're they're fulfilling both both roles. Well, I guess I thought you said that sometimes the money partner also signed on the Well, I guess you did. So we have two two partners. So so money partner doesn't usually sign for the loan. That's the unusual one. Usually, who does have to additionally sign for the loan is the deal maker syndicator. Okay. Although, if you own a, a, a large percentage of the deal. Um, a lot of lenders will require you to sign, too, just because you own a larger percentage. So it depends on lots of stuff, but I've seen that happen before. Yep. Any questions? Cool. So profit speed, how quickly do you make money, and what size of money do you make at one interval? Uh, the size is typically negotiated in the partnership agreement. So it really depends on like what your role is and what you negotiated. And it can vary depending on the real estate investing strategy, of the partnership and how the partnership is structured. So it's really hard for me to answer this one, but I will try deal makers and syndicators. They can make money up front. I think Daniel had asked whether or not you can get paid for this Yeah, You can make money up front as acquisition compensation. So putting together the deal, doing all the work, getting the deal going, getting it set up, having it go through to closing. Sometimes you can collect a fee for doing that. Uh, but you can also, as a deal maker, make money ongoing. share of the profits, fees for work done, running the investment, doing management, you know, doing all that other stuff. So you can get paid for doing that work. And then a lot of times deal makers, syndicators make the money at sale as being one of the owners. For money partners, it's typically not upfront. It's weird for you to go give a million dollars to invest in a deal and immediately get compensated part of that back. It's unusual to have it structured that way. It could be, but it's really unusual. Uh, Typically you get a profit of ongoing, uh, like revenue coming in, cash flow, whatever it is, and at the sale as part of your equity. And then loan partners, loan partners can be paid up front. They can be paid ongoing and or at sale. So one of the things we've done when we did the negotiation class is we would, uh, we would have loan partners that say, look, instead of getting paid you know, 25% of the deal or $100 a month for as long as you have the loan or $200 a month or whatever it is, um, the loan partner says, look, for $3,000, a one-time fee, I will sign on the loan for you, and you could have it out there for three years. So they just say, hey look, I just want a one-time upfront fee of $3,000. So you just collect an extra three grand from the money partner, and then you and the money partner get to split everything else. So that's how you could structure that as one possible strategy. Okay, so that's an example of being paid up front. Or ongoing. Loan partner can get 10% of the whole deal, 50% of the whole deal if it came down to it. You know, whatever you guys negotiate. Um, It could be part of cash flow. They could get a, you know, 20% of cash flow and no equity. You can structure these all different ways, or they can be paid at sale. Now they have ownership, they have 20% ownership in the whole deal, and then get paid at sale. Maybe they're not getting any of the cash flow. Maybe the, the reason that the money partner wants to be involved is they want cash flow on their money, um, but the loan partner's like, hey, look, if I can get paid you know, money when we sell this thing, I'm okay with that. So I want 20% of the equity, but 0% of the cash flow. Because some money partners, they're, they're using their money because they want uh, money to live on essentially okay any questions on profit speed profit size okay finding deals the deal maker syndicator is typically the source of the deal for the money partner and the loan partner so the money partner is not usually the one out there finding deals the loan partner is not usually the one out there finding deals it's usually the deal maker syndicator and where do they find deals multiple listing service any property listed for sale for sale by owner. And there's two groups of those, the ones that are actively marketing their property for sale. They're the ones that have the sign in the yard or they're advertising it on websites saying, I want to sell my property. It's for sale by owner. And then you've got all the hidden ones, the ones that don't really know that they um, are selling the property. It's like I would sell, or motivated, and if someone would come and offer me the right price, I would do that. And you usually find those either through networking or by putting out marketing and getting those guys to raise their hand saying, hey, my property is not up for sale yet for sale by owner, but I would be a seller. I would sell to you. And then finally, wholesalers. Those are the primary ways to find it. Someone who is out there finding deals and they're willing to assign their deal to you for a fee. More unusual ways to find deals, tax liens, tax deeds, tax sales, auctions, like foreclosure sales or IRS auctions. And then any real estate owned by a bank. When a bank takes back a property through foreclosure, sometimes they'll keep it on their books and they're, trying to, they're going to try to sell it directly before they listed the MLS. And sometimes you could buy properties that way. So those are more unusual ways to find deals. Any questions about finding deals? Cool. So when you're analyzing deals, you can go download a copy of the spreadsheets, uh, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet. And you just run your deal as if you're doing a deal analysis for doing this. I thought about adding some stuff for partnerships, and I probably will add like separate tabs just to make it easy. You put in all the partners, what percentage of cash flow they're getting, what percentage of equity they're getting. And then it'll kind of like do some summaries for you and stuff like that. But I haven't gotten there yet. So if you guys are really, really interested in that, just drop me an email especially if you're listening to this recording and I haven't done it yet. And that'll prompt me to see if uh, that's something I want to move to the top of the list to do. But unless there's demand for it, I'm probably not going to immediately jump to do that. So you can go download the spreadsheet real forward slash spreadsheet, and you can analyze deals and then just realize whatever your cash flow is, you need to divide that up by whatever the shares are for which partners, which, and then how much equity proceeds from the sale you have. Um, you need to divide that up by whatever partners are doing. You just do that manually for now. Any questions? Cool. So what kind of market conditions doing partnerships work in typically? It's markets where you can find desirable deals for partners, typically markets with good cash flow, typically markets with strong appreciation and rent appreciation. The challenging markets to do this in are markets with significant negative cash flow with reasonable down payments and markets with no or negative appreciation and rent appreciation. So you don't have to do it in your market. If you think your market's not going to be growing, you can do this in other markets. That's one of the benefits. Or you could change your strategy to take advantage of forcing cash flow in markets where they typically don't have good cash flow. For example, short-term rentals. Any questions on market, uh, market conditions? Cool. Uh, accessibility availability. So deal maker syndicators, in many markets, there are plentiful deals you can select from the MLS. So in some markets, it's as easy as just picking the best deals of the bunch from the MLS. It's not a matter of are there deals, it's sifting and sorting through the deals that there are and finding the one that makes the most sense and picking that out. In other markets, you're sifting and sorting for the top deals, which I just talked about. In other markets, it might be challenging to find positive cash flowing properties except with significant down payments. So it might be hard in your marketplace to do this. Interest rates may be a significant factor where properties will cash flow or not. And then make sure that the property you're doing, you're you're gonna do the deal with, works for the type of strategy that you're trying to implement. As one example, don't go try to do a short-term rental in a, in a neighborhood that has an HOA that prohibits short-term rentals. So verify that you're able to do the type of deal that you want to do. And then money and loan partners, you need to find the deal makers, syndicators with the deals that meet your investing criteria. So for them, you're not trying to find the deal as much as you're trying to find the deal maker syndicator who has the deal that makes sense for you. Does that make sense? Any questions? Using your retirement accounts. So can you use your retirement account to do partnerships? For the deal maker and syndicator, you may be able to take your ownership interest in the name of your retirement account, uh, usually a uh, self-directed retirement account, but it is likely to limit what you can do on the deal because you can't self-deal self or self-serve or something like that. There are limitations on what you could physically do um, when, when your uh, self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k is the one that owns the property. Uh, for a money partner, yep, you can usually invest in these with your self-directed retirement accounts because you're not usually one doing any of the work. And then for a loan partner, maybe, but it's depending on how it's structured. So you want to go talk to your advisor to make sure you get good advice on that. Um, But depending on how it's structured, you probably can, Um, but there's probably some weird exceptions to that one. Any questions on whether or not you can use your retirement account to do partnerships? Cool. All right, so now we're going to go into more of the quantitative analysis. So you'll notice the structure of this class and the previous classes and all the different strategies. I sort of do a more, qualitative analysis of like how the deals work, what the risks are, what the scalability is, what money is required, what skills are required, all those different things. And now I'm going to switch over and I'm going to do numbers. And I don't think, I don't think a lot of folks do number based analysis for different strategies, especially comparing one strategy to another where you compare numbers. And so that's what we're going to take for the rest of the time. We've got like on a 45 minutes left or so, and I'm going to dig into, Different strategies, how long they take for you to achieve financial independence, and then we're going to look at how partnerships perform for you achieving financial independence. But I will tell you, as as we've discussed in detail tonight, it is really hard to formulate like what a reasonable setup for these things are. Right? Like there's so many variations and so many different things you could do that it's going to be really tricky to do this and. Um, you probably want to go do additional modeling, depending on what you're specifically doing. I'll do some really kind of like plain vanilla-ish ones, but there's so many different variations on this. It's, it's going to be really, really hard to just pick one and do it. All right, so for deal-makers, syndicators, partnership requires work and effort like a job. So when we do modeling for it, it often shows up as income when we model it. So because they're not actually buying a property and it's not like showing up as a property, it looks a lot like, hey, look, they're just getting an extra you know, $200 a month, and that's increasing over time because that's what their ownership share gives them. And at the end, they're going to get a pop from that, right? So it sort of shows up like income when they do that. It's similar to how we model house hacking in a lot of ways, right? The house hacker gets an extra $500 or $600 or $700 a month per, per tenant that they've got in the property. And that shows up like, a, like it's a separate job or small business. So it just looks like income when we do the modeling. So it's very similar in that way. For money partners, it's typically passive. And it often shows up as a percent return on the money invested. It could also show up as like that $200 or $400 a month or whatever it is. And then a big pop at the end if you go, if you go and sell the property or an increase in the amount of cash flow you're getting when the loan gets paid off and you're in sort of steady state after that. But it, it, a lot of times you could also look at it as, hey, look, the money partner's coming in, they're investing money in the deal, they're getting whatever it is, 10% return on their money. And that's what the partnership is paying out. You could structure it that way too. So depending on how it's structured, it might be smaller monthly, quarterly, yearly return with a big bump when it sells. And that sort of makes sense, right? You guys understand this? Am I, confu- am I confused? I anybody? Okay. For loan partners it can be structured with a, a, a large number of ways. It could be one-time upfront fee, which we talked about before. It could be a percentage of the deal, cash flow and or equity. It could be yearly fees, et cetera. So it could be as long as you have the loan out, we're going to pay you $1,500 a year to be using the, your name for the loan. You signing a guaranteeing loan. So how well do partnerships perform toward achieving financial independence? We're going to look at each partnership role. And we can repeat all the other real estate strategy classes looking at how each would perform. Any questions on this slide before I get into analysis? Sweet. So let's talk about how I define financial independence. And I'm going to talk about how it's weird to model for each of the roles. So financial independence, as I define it, and we're going to do this mathematically, is when your investments provide your minimum target monthly income in retirement. Some might call this lean FIRE, financial independence, retire early. Some might just call it regular financial independence, retire early, FIRE, okay? It consists of, mathematically, this is how we calculate it, three things. Number one, passive income from Social Security, pensions, or annuities. So any money you have coming in from Social Security, pensions, or annuities, that counts toward the income for your, whether you qualify as being financially independent. Number two, any net cash flow after all expenses. So you get the rents coming in, you get any other income from the property coming in. You have your taxes, your insurance, your maintenance, your vacancy, your property management, um, your mortgage payment, principal and interest on there. Expect all those. Is that that's that's there? Whatever's left over is your net positive cash flow. What that number is, that contributes that net positive cash flow or negative, uh, contributes toward your financial independence number. And then number three, whatever your yearly safe withdrawal rate is on any invested assets. Not including your real estate equity. So any money you have invested in stocks or bonds or mutual funds or commodities or cryptocurrencies or anything like that, if you're earning a return on those, then you could use whatever your safe withdrawal rate is. Maybe it's four percent or you know three and a half percent or five percent if you're Bill Benjamin, you just re-upped your number, whatever it is there, and whatever number you're using for that number times the amount you have invested in these other asset classes like stocks or bonds or stuff like that, that's also contributes toward. Your financial independence number. So the three things are passive income, social security, pensions, or annuities, plus your net positive cash flow from rentals, or net cash flow from rentals could be negative, and your yearly safe withdrawal rate times the invested assets you have that are other than that. Does not count for your equity in your property. You can't say I have a million dollars in equity in my property times my safe withdrawal rate and I'm getting cash flow in that property. No, that's not how that works. Okay? So those three things. Now for partners, it's a little bit different, right? Because it's, it's kind of like a more unusual thing. You're not just buying straight up rental and getting cash flow on it. Well, maybe in some cases you are. For partners, it really depends on how it's structured and how I might suggest modeling it. So for the deal maker, if the deal maker comes in and they've got a partnership that they've got coming in and they're getting some cash flow on it, I think you could argue that you get cash flow from your ownership interest. That might count as your cash flow. So you could say, look, I'm getting $200 a month from this. So that would be under net cash flow from rentals. That's one way to look at it. We don't typically count equity for determining financial independence though. So if they've got $50,000, $100,000, half a million dollars or whatever in equity in that deal, that doesn't count in any way toward their financial independence calculation. Unless they sell it, they take that money and now they have it invested in something else. Stocks or bonds or whatever they're doing there or they buy another rental and then they get cash flow on that. Does that make sense everybody? Okay, so money partner, one could count the cash flow they have from ownership. So if they invested and they have 50% of the property as their ownership, and they're getting $200 a month or $300 a month, you could count the net cash flow toward their kind of financial independence numbers. Um, Or another way to do it, alternatively, you could say, look, um, as a money partner, I invested $100,000 or $200,000 in this property, and I'm not going to count the cash flow. Instead, I'm going to say I have $100,000 out, and so that is also part of my safe withdrawal number. So you could use that and just pile it into your safe withdrawal. Now you've invested in almost in like a quasi real estate investment trust where you have this asset out there and that would be part of my other assets times whatever my safe withdrawal rate is. And I have that coming in. So you look at it that way too. You can't do both though. You either count the cash flow, or you say as a money partner, I've got $200,000 out there. And so I use that as part of my safe withdrawal rate calculation. Does that make sense? And does the financial advisor in the room disagree with how I structure these? Okay, so he basically agrees. Okay, loan partner. So one could count cash flow from ownership. They're getting $100 a month because they signed on a loan. You can count that as your net positive cash flow. Or you could say, look, this is a passive income stream if it's just a yearly fee. That's sort of like a passive income, Social Security pensions or annuities. You have like a quasi annuity. It's like $1,000 a year that you get by being the signer on the loan you just count it like that, it could be that way too. Make sense? Okay. There are a lot of different ways to model these, some better than others. But this is how I think about how you do for partnerships. Any questions? Is this helpful? Okay, good. Oh, tangent. Crazy cool tangent. So why can't you just say to somebody, hey look, this thing thing cash flows $100 a month, So, um, you know, the cash flow is going to increase because of inflation or whatever it is, and I've got some expenses that are increasing. So I expect the $100 a month in cash flow just to increase linearly 3% a year. And if I'm going to do a really simple spreadsheet calculation, why can't I say $100 a month in cash flow? I'm just going to grow that at whatever inflation is, and that's how I'm going to model cash flow on this rental property. Why can't you do that? Here's the the slides that explain this. It's It's kind of a really cool one. So this is the annual cash flow, each little dot to year's worth of cash flow for a single rental property. It just shows you, starts off really, really small, and the cash flow sort of increases, and eventually you get to the point where there's a loan that's paid off, and then the loan's paid off and cash flow increases a lot more. Really, really simple thing was what's going on with this, right, you guys understand this? Okay, now what I'm gonna show you is, how much does cash flow change from this year to the year before? What's the percentage that cash flow increased from one year to the next year. So rents are going up at 3% a year. That's just normal inflation. Rents are just kind of like ticking up. Each time you renew your lease, you increase the rent a little bit. That's 3% a year. I'm just using an arbitrary number. And expenses are going up 3% a year. You know, your property taxes are going up 3% a year. Your insurance is going up 3% a year. Um, Maintenance on the property is going up 3% a year. What's not going up 3% a year though? An expense. Your mortgage payment is not going up 3% a year because when you get a mortgage, you get a 30-year mortgage, the payment, the principal and interest part of your payment is fixed. The payment stays the same from month one all the way through to month 360. Okay? So your mortgage payment is not going up 3% a year, which makes some weird things happen. right? Because now rents are going up 3%, the top line. Some of your expenses are going up 3%, but some of it's not going up at all. And so your rent's actually increasing at a different rate than just this 3%. So how fast is cash flow growing? And why is this harder to model than just doing it in a simple spreadsheet and saying 3% a year? What I'm going to show you in a second here, I'm going to show you what the difference is from one year, like if we look out next year what the rent was versus this year what the rent was, what's the percentage increase between one year to the next? That's what this chart is showing you. This dotted yellow line shows you on this left-hand side what the rate of change was or how much rent changed from one year to the next. And it's not linear it's not three percent a year okay so because it's hard to see i just turned off the background actual rents the cash flow rather and now i'm showing you this dotted yellow line which those of you that opted to sit in the back row sorry about that but really if you if you could see it it goes like this it starts really really high and then it kind of it goes down pretty quickly and tapers off it sort of approaches one fixed number but then you have this really big bump up when you pay off the mortgage and then it kind of stays there for a little while and then it goes all the way back down here and then it hovers at a fixed rate once you get the property paid off. So here's what I'm trying to show you though is when the property is early, it's young and you've got a small amount of cash flow and cash flow is increasing, your, your cash flow is increasing at 20 something percent in that first year. Then it kind of goes down, it's at like whatever it is, just under 25% in the next year. But each year it's, it's increasing slower right? Your, your biggest jump in cash flow is early on when you own the property and the cash flow is really small. You know, Here's another way to think about it. You're getting $100 a month in cash flow on a property. You raise rents by $100 you know, on the rent overall. And so maybe your cash flow, let's assume that it goes up that full 100. So you, you were getting 100. It went up by 100. That's a 100% increase, right? It's not 3% increase. It's not like you went from $100 a month cash flow to 103. It's because you had a fixed dollar amount increase, and the cash flow was so small, the percentage that cash flow increase is really, really significant. So you can't just go model in a spreadsheet that I made $100 a month in cash flow. Next year, I'm going to make 3% more. You can't do it because it changes every year. And this is how it changes. This is the actual graph that shows how it changes. And it becomes asymptotic, fancy math term for those who don't want to talk about, but it becomes asymptotic to whatever the rents are going up at, 3%. Eventually, once your mortgage is paid off and that fixed part of that payment eventually goes away, it becomes basically about 3%. Make sense? Okay. Um, and I'm just going to throw a curveball out there. You, know, you can like tune out for like 30 seconds. But if we take into account cash flow that includes cash flow from depreciation, the tax benefits, it's a little bit more interesting because the, when you lose your depreciation benefit after 27 and a half years, your cash flow actually goes down. For that period of time. Then a couple of years later, you pay off the property, it bumps up, but then it kind of hovers around 3% again. And this curve is a little bit more reasonable because you're already making more cash flow because you had cash flow from depreciation added in. Okay? Tune back in. Welcome back, everybody. All right. I gotta take a drink. I noticed my voice has been weird since I had COVID. Anyone else noticing that? My voice is going. No one else? Just me? A little bit? All right. So changeable assumptions. So these are the assumptions I use. They're based on some characters from the uh, Real Estate Financial Planner podcast, Norman Norma, if you're kind of familiar with them. So these are the assumptions I use, but you can copy these to your own account and change any of the assumptions. So if you're like, James, oh, I wish you did... $80,000 a year in income or I'm not saving thousand dollars a month. I'm saving $2,000 a month, but otherwise this is me or you know, my properties where I live are not, you know, $375,000 they're $200,000 or they're a million dollars or whatever they are. You could change all these assumptions. So Norman, Norma, they're married, they're both 21 years old, recently out of college. Uh, they graduated, they work in a technology department of a large healthcare business. Uh, they have a total of $10,000 saved up between the two of them, not each. Um, they earn $72,000 per year combined. each or $18 per hour times 2,000 hours worked a year is $36,000 per year. Each person combined $72,000 total. They're saving about $1,000 per month before they buy any houses. They're renting right now and they're able to save $1,000 a month. They're obsessed about achieving financial independence so they can retire early. And these are the same folks that have gone through all the different strategies we've taught. So it's the same assumptions we use for buy and hold, Fix and flip, house hacking, creative financing. All of these are the same assumptions so that we can kind of compare them and see how long each strategy takes for them to be financially independent. They want to find their best path to financial independence together. And for them, that means fastest and safest. They're going to look at some risk things. Uh, we're not going to cover risk tonight, but we cover risk in the podcast. Uh, they're both taking Social Security age 67. And I estimated that they're taking Social Security based on them working fully until they're age 67, which... In our modeling, they don't do that. So if they be, if they're financially independent by age 50, they stop working. So my modeling for social security is not conservative. It assumes that they've worked all the way through 67 and that the amount that they're earning at 67 is that they work through that period of time, but it's not true. And so it's, it's less conservative to model it that way. But my argument is they're already financially independent. Social security is sort of a bonus. So it doesn't really matter, right? If they really are financially independent by age 50, does it matter that they're getting an extra thousand dollars a month from social security? I don't think so. It just adds a little extra bump, but they're already there. Okay? That's how I can justify it to myself. Any questions on their assumptions? Cool. So, limitations by role. So, if they're the deal maker or syndicator, many of these assumptions don't limit them except that it's a separate job. So, it doesn't matter how much they make or what their savings rate is or or anything like that. They're the deal maker. They're not concerned about debt to income and being able to qualify for loans or how much money they have to invest in the deal. They're the ones putting together the deal themselves. So as long as they can work enough hours to do the deal maker syndicator thing, it doesn't matter to them. It's not a limitation. Now they could invest their own money or credit in other deals. I didn't model it that way, but because they have their full money that they've been saving up and their full credit that they were using, they could go do in parallel, buy and hold, house hacking, Nomad, creative financing, fix and flips, they could do other stuff in addition to these partnerships. I didn't model it that way. I basically said they're investing in the stock market instead. So they could be doing this in parallel. And if you want to know how that performed, go look at previous classes. Now if they're the money partner though, the amount that they have saved invested is the primary limitation. The fact that they're saving $1,000 a month, that's going to limit what they can do. If a a, uh, deal syndicator needs someone with $50,000, and they only have $20,000 saved up, they can't do the deal, unless they become one of two money partners. So it doesn't matter if they can qualify for loans or anything like that. The money that they invest in the partnership likely limits them to being able to do other deals in parallel, though, as well. So because they're putting money into other deals, they're not going to have down payments for doing Nomad or Buying Hold or House Hacking, and not until much later when they have money coming in from those deals. Does that make sense? Okay. And if they're the loan partner, their ability to qualify for loans is the primary limitation. It doesn't matter if they have enough down payments or anything like that, but the loans they do might limit their ability to other investing in parallel. So, if they've got 10 loans out in partnerships, they can't do their own buy and hold with 25% down for themselves unless they do weird loans for those. Okay? All right, some more changeable scenario assumptions. I modeled this for 60 years. I assume their effective income tax rate based on the $72,000 that they're earning is 17.85%. I assume 3% inflation. Yeah, I know. This is like a reasonable inflation number, not what we're seeing right now. Uh, mortgage interest rates, same as previous classes. Uh, we're using a 4% yearly safe withdrawal rate. And we're saying that once they are earning $5,000 a month as their minimum target monthly income and retirement, and that does adjust up with inflation, but when they achieve that, then they're considered financially independent. So they're making $72,000 a year, which is $6,000 a month. And I'm saying $5,000 a month is their target. Why am I saying $5,000 is their target when they're currently earning $6,000? Anyone know? They're saving $1,000 a month. So in order to be financially independent, they don't need to have that savings amount as well. So this is how much they're living on. okay? And then ideally, they want to make $10,000 a month. So we do do the math for when they earn that as well, but not in this class. All right, so let's go talk about some results, and then I'll get into their uh, partnership stuff. So these are uh, summaries of some of the numbers from previous classes. So the first ones we're going to start with are the buy and hold ones. So they did no real estate at all. They only invest in stocks. It would take them 40.17 years to be financially independent. So 482 months. And the stock market, I think, is growing at 8%. We just assume 8%. Does that seem reasonable for assumption for stock market? 8%. Is that what you use? Uh, we do it based off of a balanced portfolio in all cases, um, not necessarily just an all stock portfolio. Because like the S&P 500 returns 12%, but that's assuming that US equity markets are going to perform the same way going forward that they always have. Yeah. So we don't have that assumption. So, so it's like it differs based on what board uh, percentage asset allocation they have? Yeah, exactly. OK. OK, so it could be whatever. But 8% seems like a reasonable number somewhere in the ballpark. And no one knows what the future is going to be. I mean, 8% could be really, really high for what actually happens. It could be really, really low for what happens. Who knows? So 40.17 years, that's why we do Monte Carlo modeling in the advanced analysis that we do. This is all static. Whoa, it's really high. Uh, 40.17. So here's some other the buy and hold numbers um, modeled. I'm not going to go into like ridiculous detail, but this is the one for all stocks. That's 40.17 years. This is if they buy one owner occupant property to live in and then they do stocks. That turns out to be 33 years, a little bit faster. If they buy 20% down rentals, or 25% down rentals, or 15% down rentals, they're going to buy 10 of those. It changes the time. 31.42 years for 20% down, 28.67 for 25% down, and uh, 33.5 for 15% down. And then we say, what if they buy an owner-occupant property, but then they buy 15% down rentals, or 20% down rentals, or 25% down rentals. Those are all the ones where that they buy an owner-occupant property first, and then they buy their rentals. What if they do short-term rentals? Those are a little bit faster, 24.67 years. Uh, 23.67 and 24.67 depending on how much they put down. It's a little bit faster to do short-term rentals. And then what if they buy an owner-occupant property and then do short-term rentals? Those are a little bit longer. So those would take a little bit longer if they decided to do that. Any questions on these? This is what we covered in the buy and hold class. So if you really want to know a deep dive into this particular slide, that was like two hours on buy and hold. Any questions? Cool. What if they do Nomad? So the Nomad strategy for those that don't know, you buy a property as an owner-occupant, you move in, And you live there for a year at the end of the year when your agreement with the lender is up where because basically when you get the loan for an owner occupant you agree to live there for a year once that year is up you can convert the property to a rental and buy another owner occupant property so in a lot of cases the nomads are putting five percent down moving into a property living there for a year getting really good owner occupant financing rates putting minimal amount down they're living in the property for a year they have pmi but even with the pmi the rates better. Um, So, they're living in the property for a year, then they convert it to a rental, they repeat this process until they have the number of rentals that they want, and that's the strategy to do it. So, if you imagine for a minute, instead of having to come up with 20% down in order to buy a rental property, you could buy four with 5% down with the same amount of down payment. So, you basically acquire eight rental properties with down payments for two. Think about it that way. Okay? So, when they do the Nomad strategy, they buy with 10 properties with 5% down, it's 26.5 years. If they buy ten fixer upper nomads, you know properties that need a little bit of work, it's 19.58 years. They buy ten nomad properties where they have their kids move in on their behalf because they don't want to move into a property every year, but they've got college age kids, and so basically when their co- kids go to college, they. They co-sign a loan for their kids in college where they're buying it together, they, the kid lives in the property for the year, and then at the end of the year they move into the next property. So while they're at university, they're, them and their parents acquire four Nomad properties that way. They got two kids, that gets them eight. So they can kind of do this as Nomad by proxy. Yeah, Ben? Just a question on the Fixer Upper Nomad. Yep. What's the discount? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me something like that. There, the Fixer Upper Nomad class, I went into the details, but I don't remember. Um, and it's hard for me to keep track of all these numbers because not only am I doing prep for these classes I'm doing like individual podcasts and stuff for myself and so I, I don't remember Maybe 10% I don't, I don't remember like but it was like a number where they got a big discount But they also had to come up with the money to do the fix-up themselves So it was like a weird net discount, but I don't remember what the exact Was but it wasn't crazy. It wasn't like a really ridiculously aggressive assumption. I remember thinking this seems really reasonable. partially because it needed to be a property that was in good enough condition where they can move in and get the regular financing. Yeah. But go watch that class. Yeah. It's on the podcast. Um, so we did that. We did uh, Nomad with short-term rentals. So they basically move into your property, live there for a year. And then when they move out, they do short-term rentals with it instead of doing long-term leases. Um, and that takes 12.67 years. If they do uh, house hacking, so they move into a property and they get a roommate while they're living there, or they get two roommates, or they get three roommates, or they get four roommates, or they buy a duplex of some sort and they kind of do that, or a triplex or a fourplex. And so we've got all the different house hacking variations there ranging from 21.83 years to 16.67. Or if they do Nomad with lease options, or uh, if you're a real estate agent, the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan of doing Nomad and moving into properties and getting a rebate on your down payment because you got paid a commission when you move in. So it's like a strategy for doing Nomad where you have a real estate license and you could really minimize how much you need in order to do that strategy. So we cover that in there too, but here's the Nomad stuff summarized. Okay. Here's house hacking summarized. I'm not going to go on all these, but it's all different variations of house hacking. You know, buying a property with one roommate or two roommates or three roommates or four roommates and, you know, different down payments, you know, 20% down or I, I think would, no, actually we did all 5% down. So I don't remember what we did here, but all the numbers are there. Go listen to the House Hacking class for details. This is the Burr class. Buying a property, um, rehabbing the property, renting the property out, and then refinancing to try to pull out either all your money or as much of your money as you can, leaving minimal in the deal. That's what the Burr strategy is about, and then you can use that money again to go buy the next one. Uh, So buying a Burr with 10% down, We're leaving 10% in the deal, Burr with 5% down, leaving 5% in the deal, and then Burr where you're able to get nothing down. So the nothing down one's 14.67 years. If you have to leave 10% in the deal, it's 21.67 for Norma Norma doing that with the assumptions we talked about. Any questions on this? Cool. Here's all the stuff on quick turning and flipping. You know, doing $25,000 net flips every six months or doing it every nine months or doing it every year, uh, doing live-in flips. I went through a whole bunch of variations on like, is it better to do a live-in flip and flip as quickly as you can, do a live-in flip and wait at least one year so that you get long-term capital gains, on the things you're doing or doing a live and flip where you stay there for two years and you don't have to pay any long-term capital gains at all because you have the, the exemption. What's the exemption called when you live in a house for two years? you know what the name of that is? I don't know. But you live in a house two out of the last five years and you don't have to pay any capital gains up to certain limitations. It's pretty big limitations though um, on a property. So we did all the variations on that and looked at the time for how long it took there to do that. And then live-in flips as an agent or for sale by owner. There's a whole bunch of variations on the flipping one. You can get a feel for those. Those are pretty fast. And then here is all of the ones i've covered so far shown on one chart color-coded so all the like what color is this maroon is that a maroon color maroon colored ones these are all the buy and hold the orange ones are all the nomad ones the whatever that is green sea green Uh, that's all the burr ones quick turn flips all the purple ones and then apparently a different color green is house hacking Um, you can get a relative size difference to see which ones are in general, faster than other strategies. So buy and hold tends to be one of the slower ones. House hacking tends to be pretty slow, although there's some quicker ones on the end there. Uh, Burr tends to be pretty fast. Nomad tends to be pretty fast. Depending on what you're doing with the quick turn flipping ones, there's some, pretty, some really fast ones in there and some slower ones in there as well. So you can get a feel for what's going on. Um, you know, Go watch the classes for the details on the exact numbers for those. But you can get a relative size difference. I love this chart. This is like one of my favorite charts now for being able to compare all these. All right. Yeah? Short-term rental, was yep. it on there? Probably because it's hit the criteria. It is on there. It is? Oh, yeah, short-term rentals are in here. Yeah, they're like mixed in because like the buy and hold has some short-term rentals. The Nomad has some short-term rentals. Bird doesn't. Quick Turn Flip I don't think has any, and House Hacking doesn't is either. But there's short-term rentals mixed in here. Um, you're basically buying properties in short-term. Yeah, I don't remember where they are, but yeah, they're in there. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. OK, any other questions? All right, so creative financing. This was last week, right? Like Everything's merging together. So last week was creative financing. This is buying creative financing with one month reserves all the way through to six months reserves. Everything from as quick as 8.83 years all the way up to 17.42 years for doing creative financing. If you do creative financing and you do uh, thousands of dollars in reserves, 10K, 20K, 30K, 40K, 50K, it shows the times for those instead of months of reserves. And then creative financing with different discounts at purchase. So if you get a 10% discount, 12% discount, um, I think this is, this must be 6% discount and this is an 8% discount. It shows you the amount of time it takes based on the discount you get with creative financing. And then by holding period. Oh, by how long you're buying for. So this is if you're buying for, I think 10 years, this is for 15 years. and This is for five years. So this is how long you're doing creative financing deals before you stop. Um, and it ranges everything from 12.67 years all the way up to 34.83, depending on how long you do it for. And then I added in the creative financing ones all right here in red. So it's the same stuff we had before. I just added this one in there so you can get a comparison size-wise. Creative financing is really fast. It's also a very active strategy. So you can kind of get a feel for that. Any questions on this? Sweet. All right, so deal-maker modeling assumptions. So now we're doing the deal-maker syndicator person. I assume that the dealmaker was able to negotiate 25% of the deal, 25% of the cash flow, 25% of the equity, as their payment for doing the deal. So Bill, to answer your question as to what I think is reasonable, pulled it out of the air. 25% for the dealmaker syndicator for doing all that work. Okay? You know, there's some, there's some, like, I don't know, almost like proxies for, for, like, what's going on there. Like, property management's 10% of gross rents. So you can figure out like what that is as a percentage of real cash flow and what that is as a percentage of you know, equity at the end. And you can kind of get just a corollary for just property management as like that there. But then there's other stuff you're doing as well, like managing the partnership and acquiring the deal. And so, I don't know, you could sort of do that. But anyway, 25% of the deal, 24% of cash flow and equity, they're acquiring the deal, they're doing property management, they're also managing the partnership, they're disposing of the deal, although it's not modeled, because I assume that they hold it forever none of their own money is in the deal. Instead, they're investing their money in stocks at 8% per year instead, and they're not limited by debt to income or money. They don't need to have debt to income because they're not qualified for loans. They don't need to have any money because they're using a money partner to do these. 25% of the deal. How long does it take? If they do a deal every 12 months, 10 total, takes them 21 years to be financially independent using those assumptions, where they're getting 25% of the deal. If they do a deal every six months and they do 10 deals, so they do it for five years, 19.67 years in order to be financially independent. If they do a deal every six months and they do 20 deals because they're not limited by the number of deals they could do, doesn't matter what their DTI is, doesn't matter how many loans they have, doesn't matter how much money they have for down payments. So they could do 20, right? Just a matter of them managing 20 partnerships. That would take them 14.67 years for doing that. Okay. Any questions on this? This is the deal syndicate, deal maker syndicator role. Loan partner modeling assumptions. Again, I assume that they were able to negotiate 25% of the deal, 25% of the cash flow and equity for being the signer on that loan. Again, it's arbitrary, it's negotiated. They are personally guaranteeing the loan. None of their own money in the deal. Their money is invested in stocks at 8%. They're limited by debt to income. So they can't do 10 on day one. They don't have enough income to support it with low cash flow. But if they're doing it over time, their cash flow improves and they can qualify for more. Um, They have to find the partnerships where they can get 25% for signing for the loan. That's another limitation they have. And they're limited by the number of loan spots. They can get 10 non-owner occupant 30-year fixed rate loans total. So they can't do 20. Uh, Looks very similar to DealMaker Syndicator, except they can't go above 10 deals because of loan spots. So they're both doing 25%. They don't have a a money limitation. So it looks a lot like the deal syndicator because they're using like a almost an unused asset, their ability to get a loan. They're not using money to do it, right? So I added these two on the bottom, but it looks exactly like if they did 10, just like the, um, the deal syndicator, the dealmaker syndicator, 21 years for both of those. And if they do a deal every six months, they do 10 total, it's 19.67. They can't do the 20, though. They can't get 20, 30-year fixed-rate financing loans. So that's why there's not a third one here. Any questions on that? Covered deal maker, syndicator, I've covered loan, partner. Okay, Money partner, modeling assumptions. They own 50% of the deal. 50% of the cash flow and equity in the property. They're putting up all the cash required to do the deal, 25% down, closing costs, reserves, etc. It's a passive investment for them, only their money's in the deal. They're not doing any work or signing for the loan. They're limited by the money and finding the partnerships where they can get 50% by putting up the money. We model this two different ways. And of all the ones, I think this is the worst modeled, in my opinion, which I can go into detail some other time. As 50% of the property based on when they'll have enough to do a full 25% down payment, closing costs, and reserves. So it takes time to do that. And then as 10% return on all their money instead of 8%. So you could look at this, someone decides to do a money partner and Instead of actually modeling as I own part of this property and I'm looking at cash flow, what if we just said, because you've got POPs in there and everything else, maybe you're able to overall get a 10% overall return on your money. The challenge with this, and I'll draw this on the board, is what does your return look like over time on a rental property? So this is time, and this is like your percentage return. Does the return you're earning And this is return on equity, right? Because it's the amount of money you have tied up in the deal. Okay, So return on equity. So the amount of money you have in a deal, what is your return the longer you own an investment, a rental property? It drops. And that's counterintuitive to a lot of people. Because they think, my cash flow is improving. My appreciation dollar amount is improving. My amount that I'm getting from the tax benefits, my depreciation is fixed for 27 and a half years. Then it goes to zero. So that doesn't improve over time and the amount I'm paying down the debt, while well, that increases a little bit, it, it, it's increasing, but it's, it's really increasing at a relatively slow rate and it goes to zero after the loan's paid off. So you'd think to yourself, Hey, appreciation's going up, cash flow's going up, you know, debt paydown's going up a little bit until it goes to zero and depreciation's fixed. You would think that your return is going up over time, but it's not. The dollar amount you're making on the investment is going up, but the amount you have in equity is also growing. And the amount you have in equity is growing faster than the amount of your return is growing. So what tends to happen to your return over time is it tends to go down. And then it becomes asymptotic to what numbers? Anyone know? Anyone know what this number is right here, like at the low? Once a loan is paid off and once depreciation has gone away, what does it actually equal? It equals cap rate plus your raw appreciation rate. So it's whatever the cap rate is in the property, which is your return and cash flow of a property that doesn't have a loan, plus whatever your raw appreciation number is. So if properties are going up 3% a year and your cap rate's 5%, this is 8%. So your return approaches whatever your cap rate plus your appreciation number is at the bottom here. And it starts off really high. Your return on the equity you have starts off at the highest it is. And then your return goes down over time. So the longer you hold your investment, the lower the return you're getting on that investment is. It's counterintuitive to a lot of people, which is why some people will argue that whenever your your overall return on equity drops below a certain threshold, some people might use 10% as an arbitrary threshold, they will either do a cash out refinance to raise up their rate again, minimize the amount they have back in the deal, or they'll sell the property and re-leverage up. Does that make sense? So you could go and say as a strategy, hey, whenever my return on equity drops below x, then go ahead and sell the property, redeploy it as two different down payments or three different down payments or however many you can do with how much much is in there, and then reboost the return you're getting on the assets you have. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. Any questions on this? Pretty cool, right? So I was telling you this because when I kind of bumped their return up to 10%, you're like, why'd you use 10%? Well, because I think rental properties, especially leveraged rental properties, can beat a 8% return right? Typically. Although in this case, they only own half, but it could be the 8% return from the stock market in most cases leveraged, But over time though, this goes pretty low. You know, if you really only have 5% cap rate properties and a 3% appreciation rate, it really literally is going to 8%. And if you're a money partner and you own half of this property, you're getting four on your money. So you'll probably want to get out of this deal at some point or refinance out and have less in the deal so that your return on the money you have invested is higher. So I used 10, because I picked it. I went and I actually looked at the average for the first, I think, 10 years, and it was higher than that, but not much. But you can go look at those numbers on there, okay? So I'm gonna model it two ways. I'm gonna model it where they own 50% of the rental, but they put down the whole down payment, I'm gonna model it where they put 10% return on all their money. So instead of the stock market money that they were earning 8%, I'm just gonna say it's earning 10, and we'll look at the difference between those two. So, these are the two. If they own 50% of the properties, um, it takes 46.8 years, 46.08 years. If they get 10% return on their money instead of 8%, it's 33.17 years. So, pretty slow compared to the other strategies. Okay? Any questions on Money Partner? So, I just added in the partnerships over here so you could see relative sizes, sort of in the middle. I mean, it's not like you know, creative financing low, or you know, even some of the um, flip type low. But you know, it's on par with a lot of the nomad strategies, you know, a little faster, a little slower, depending on which one you're comparing it to. It's definitely faster than buy and hold, uh, faster than house hacking. It's kind of give you a feel, relative sizes. Is that helpful? Okay. So in conclusion, the assumptions you use for modeling matter a lot. You know, if we change what you're doing in your as your role as a partner, if we change, you know, the number or frequency that you buy, if we go from buying 10 to 20, you're buying only five, or the size of the deal that you do, how big of a discount you get if you're getting discounted deals, or what your profit is on a deal, or what your cash flow is on a deal, what the market conditions are, you know, what we use for appreciation rate or rent appreciation rate or the price of the properties even, um, interest rates, you know, we get lower interest rate, higher interest rate, rents on the property, vacancy, maintenance, property management, taxes, insurance. All of these assumptions matter, and they're going to matter a lot. It's going to impact what you do. Uh, Also, your stock market rate of return, or what you're investing in, and what its risk profile is. And then what you set your target monthly income retirement is, both your minimum and ideal. If you have a higher number, it may take you a lot longer, a lot shorter, depending on what you do. And then what you use for your safe withdrawal rate, what you believe is a reasonable safe withdrawal rate to use there. And then the strategies that work best in your market may differ. So maybe it's better to buy and hold, or short-term rentals, or house hacking, or... Uh, creative financing in your market because it's different right so it could be better or worse depending on that you got to do the math for your own situation and then because I'm trying to do this recordings for all the different cities in the US if you go to real estate financial com forward slash model rather for real estate financial planner.com forward slash model I'm trying to do it's not done yet but all of these scenarios for all the different classes for every city using their city's prices and taxes and insurance and rents and everything else so that you can go say I'm going to copy this one because it's closest to where I live and it's most similar and then I'll just change some of the assumptions for what's going on so you can just change all whatever you want to do for you. Any final questions? That's all I got. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, that's a tax question. So the question was, how does the partner's benefit depreciation? I, I don't do my own taxes. I have a CPA do it. But my understanding is that it's based on your ownership percentage. But I'm not 100% sure, because I don't do that. And honestly, I was making too much money to take the depreciation benefit for um, many, many years. And this is probably the first year where I didn't. Okay. So I don't and I don't even know. What, I, I don't look at my taxes, honestly. That's unfortunate. I guess you could add that into the model. I mean, it wouldn't make, be a mess. But. For the- we do take it to, We do take that into account. Oh, okay. Yeah, we do model it. So you do get the depreciation benefit based on your ownership share. Okay. That's how I do model it. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it's a relatively small number. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Yep. Any other questions? Is that helpful? Mm-hmm. Kind of a crazy class. Now you see the format right now, if you've been to other ones we've done there, it's like it's the same format, but you now get to see it from different strategies perspectives. Okay, no final questions? questions? Yeah, question. For someone who is new, how do, I, how do you access those previous classes? They're on the podcast. Okay. Yep, they're on the podcast. Remember that city podcast I was telling you about? I don't know. Yep, so go, do, go look go looking and click on a link for a podcast. Okay. All right, cool. Any other questions? Sweet, guys. Thanks for coming. I do appreciate it. I will talk to you all soon. Bye bye for now. With home prices up,